0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, in part five of our six-part "Remembering Gilles De Ferran" feature series. Getting close to rounding home, and who better to join us? Justin Bell, son of Le Mans legend Derek Bell, young open-wheel racer in his own right, then transitioned into sports cars. Might think of all that Gilles did as a driver and such where intersecting with Justin might not make a whole lot of sense, but indeed, not only did they know each other back in the day, but got to know each other much better in about 20-plus years ago. And when learned about Jill's passing, thought of Simon Paginot, thought of Justin Bell, one of... Jill's best friends if not uh, just absolute brothers so thankful for Justin taking some time while this was still very raw just a couple of days after Gilles loss telling us about the person he knew in ways that definitely if you were a fan might have suspected Gilles was this awesome but Justin takes us deep inside who he was, what he brought to their friendship and relationship in so many aspects about their time together. Our show, as always, is brought to you by FAF Technologies, next-generation composite engineering and manufacturing capabilities in the outskirts of Toronto, Canada. The Justice Brothers, makers of premium automotive chemicals and lubricants, and torontomotorsports.com, purveyors of wonderful motorsports memorabilia. So let's get going with Justin Bell talking about our beloved Gilles DeFerrin. And you, with your career as a race car driver, primarily in sports cars, not that you didn't have your junior open wheel period, but I think folks think primarily of you as sports car racer, commentator, and so on, might not know. Indeed, you and Gilles DeFerrin were best of friends for a really, really long time. Tell me about this, brother. When did you two meet? When did this early brotherhood uh, develop?
1: Well, thank you, Marshall. Yeah, um, it's, I've got to say that I think, I mean, you just nailed it, actually. Something I was going to bring up later, and, and I'll come back to it, is my career, obviously, in Single seaters and then the camel, uh, you know, the camel ladder, if you like, was when I first, Gilles, first came onto my radar. And because I was, weirdly enough, I was kind of doing ahead of him with the, I did Voxel Lotus before he did it, yeah. you know, Opal Lotus before he did it. So,
0: so he it was a big was, deal back in the day. Crazy a amount deal. of young talent came out of there. Yeah.
1: And we were the first, I was the first batch, you know, with David Brabham and everybody. And, and uh, you know it was uh, it was us that was you know Damon Hill was even in it and, Ed and Senna was driving in Senna, in camel colours so you felt pretty bloody cool um, that so and at that age you everyone around you you know you really don't care about other drivers do you you're like okay well they're there how fast are they um, and so and so I think that would apply to all of us. Um, the only thing for me was that I never did karting. So I was not exposed to the Alan issues and Micah Hacken or Gilles de France until I saw them on the grid. And by then it was a little late for me. But Gilles was never on the grid with me. We just, we it, our careers at that point went, you know, in, to, in different parallels, really, as I headed towards sports cars. So it was acquaintance at that point. However, I knew Angela... Angela came into my sphere a bit more at that point. She's a beautiful blonde girl. Of course she's going to, you know, and snatched up by the hairy Brazilian. Um, But, you know, I remember that moment as well as I do. Paul Stewart snapping up, snatching up uh, Victoria. And I remember going, my God, these guys are fast. You know, they're fast and they get the really hot chicks. So, you know, it was typical young early 20s bravado, you know, but it was in 1999, um, I'd started, well, in the 90s, I, late 90s, I started to, to cross paths with GLs a bit more. We had mutual friends. But in 99, when I got that, uh, at the end of 99, when I got that Corvette contract, I had really been, uh, it, it allowed me to move to, to America, as you know. And the first place I wanted to live because of the deference and my dad living on, in Boca, I was to be in Fort Lauderdale. And I'd started to spend more time with the Defeminists, actually through the, the Sopas, as you know, Steve Soper, one of the best BMW touring car drivers and sports car drivers ever. And he our lives all started to intertwine. And Anna and Luke were born, and I remember them being so so small, you know, Gilles and Andrew's kids. But it was really in Fort Lauderdale in in 2000 that our friendship started to take the, the roots, the foundations for what we had uh, all the way to now. And he, I think this is the critical point. I was in racing, I was one of the brotherhood, but I was not directly in Gilles' way. Mm. All right? So, and I know that runs slightly contrary to the deep affection and deep relationships he has with so many of his peers from the time but when he was racing it was always a little more reserved for him with those drivers not not when he was having a caipirinha with you but you know you remember him him at the track Marshall it was there was race week Jill and there was non
0: race week Gilles. all business it was an all switch. business at the yeah. track
1: absolutely in a way so so for me, it's funny you should say I'm a sports car guy, and he was a, a Formula car guy. But boy, that's what allowed our relationship to, to flourish. And because, and if I'm rambling on here, please stop Brother, me. This but is you know, what we're these, here to do. Yeah, these thoughts are coming to me. What was spectacular for me uh, in our Florida group. And thanks to him, obviously, I got exposed through to the Tonys and, you know, the all the Brazilian drivers down there. And and everybody was sort of, it was this community. And it, it was my first experience of the, the passion that especially the Brazilians have for life. And he would have a race at the weekend that was, you know, demanding. And I know that the Gilles... I was doing my own stuff and racing, but we would get together on a Monday and his house was the place to be. And it was as though the tension and the pressure the week before and the stress 200 miles an hour plus the day before, come rent, you know, crash or not, or when, whatever had happened. And we would let loose on a Monday. And it was just this eye opening thing for me that you can be a leading athlete in your sport like he was and basically be a total total prat on a Monday and jump in the pool with our clothes and drink and barbecue and and I was like oh my god this is how to do it he actually he actually opened my eyes to to how you can you can combine both sides of life and be successful uh which is so funny because I've read a lot of people say, I didn't know Gilles, I just knew him through his racing. And I've got to say, if you just know him through his racing, you know half the man, you know? I was going to say,
0: you, in your broadcast career, my own and my whatever media career, we have gotten to know and interview a lot of drivers in the past 15, 20 years, however long it's been for the two of us. And we can say there are very few who strike that balance that Gilles did, which makes them infinitely interesting and human and fun. The amount of drivers, and unfortunately there's far too many young drivers today, sports car, open wheel, whatever, where their life consists of waking up, going to the gym, then going for a run, spending some time on the simulator, (laughs) eating and drinking things that have negative calories in them, Uh, going to the gym again, some more simulator time, spending time on Instagram, TikTok, wherever, and that's the sum total of their lives. And good on them for being fully dedicated to their craft and just all in to the professional side of what they do. But, good Lord, trying to have a meaningful, interesting, comedic, enlightening conversation, it's growing harder and harder because the amount of folks who are willing to go all in on their job and say, that is only half of me. It's not my totality. It is half. And, hey, we're going out to the backyard And we're stripping down our underwear and acting like fools. I've seen the photo of you and Jill, by the way. phenomenal. But (laughs) (laughs) that kind of thing made Gilles one of the many things, Justin, that made him so beloved. Because if you were speaking with him, even during a race weekend when he was locked in, there was still this immense human, well rounded side to him pre marriage, post marriage, you know, before he was a father and, and husband, after. Uh, I just, I appreciate that so much about him. I think that if we're talking about role models, good Lord. I wish that is, that is, the, that is the follow. role model.
1: Yeah, it really is. That is he also, and I joke, I mean anyone that's listened to your interviews with him or my interviews with him, you know, it's, or is one part of it sitting down late at night. And I know I said that on my little Instagram post so, you know, sitting there at night, Talking, he, his command of the English language, I'm sorry, I do not know many native English-speaking men who talk with the intellectual awareness and capacity for choosing the right words that Gilles did. And you would sit there and I'd go, i sometimes go, God, you're not even talking in your own language, mate. You're, you, how did you summarize that so well? And... And I mean, but you know, it's, it's, he had his flaws, like we all do. And he was very self aware of those. And I think the, the beauty of the friend group that was the inner circle, which included Elio, which included, you know, Paul Stewart, DC, me, and Hugh Murray, you know, who not involved in racing, but uh, I, I have to say in this interview was a, hugely influential confidant that you'll never hear about in Jill's life, a man that helped Gilles through some of the most strategic and difficult business and personal career decisions he ever made, and that was Hugh, and a Scottish guy, which meant that Hugh also uh, was one of those guys who... Because he's Scottish. He could, he could drink. He, you know, he, I mean, Hugh does drink, by the way. So on Friday, I'm sure we'll be in a mess. But it's just, he he brought this life to it as well. And this was who Gilles had in his inner circle. And we, what was beautiful about it, Marshall, was we, I'd literally, we'd rip each other apart in that way that only great, loving friends can do. You know the the sort of honesty, and I'd walk in and go, "You're just a fat bastard, mate. <laughs> what are you doing?" And he'd drag on his cigarette and go, "It's not that bad." And I say, "You look like a flipping Buddha. If I put you up against the window, you look like the Buddha." <laughs> you know what I mean? And he, we could talk like that, and he would be, he would give me, we'd we'd share, we'd just laugh, and and it's, but it's the words of wisdom, the fact. That this is something that I'm sure you've heard time and time again, uh, but I was talking with Cassie Soper, who was his, you know, you know, Steve's daughter. She was my goddaughter, and a wonderful girl. She's about thirty now, and she's known Gilles since she was born, pretty much. And she, she called me, obviously in tears, which I was in tears too. But as she said, sorry, <clears throat> as she said. He would talk to you and he would make you feel that was all he was interested in was what nothing else was distracting him. It was your issue or your subject or your problem or your decision you had to make. And he wouldn't let it go. I'd be often like, all right, I'm over this. I've thought this through enough now. I'm going to do it. And he'd be like, no, no, no. Have you considered taking this and doing that and coming cooking the recipe of life in a different way. And Cassie so eloquently said it. She said, he just helped me. You know, he had an insight, which was great. Mm. It was great.
0: And that's so much of who he was. Yeah. I I think I was speaking with Simon Paginot and mentioning... <laughs> If I ever felt I was the subject matter expert on something and presented myself in such a way in a conversation with Gilles, i learned very quickly I should never walk into a conversation with Gilles feeling like I'm a subject matter expert. And I've considered all angles. And I know, right? Even if I was mentioning something to him, he'd never heard of. And he knew nothing about it. And I'd known about my entire life and had studied and just intensely, I'd leave the conversation going, geez, you're an idiot. You hadn't considered those seven things, right? And how many people in life, Justin, again, we're all connected through racing. I get that. But how many people in life other than your rabbi, your priest, your whomever it might be, uh, can you say, good Lord, Whatever it was, he would run that thing through that supercomputer in his brain, through that extremely old soul of his. He'd run through all these filters yeah. and come back with at least one or two things where you go, oh, woo, wow, that was
1: cool. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, really. I mean, Marshall, it's, it's so when did you first meet him? I can't even think of that. Well, When did you first come across him?
0: I admired him immensely as a race car driver. Uh, I think the Formula Vauxhall Lotus here as well uh, followed him coming up through British F3 and then F3000. I would make my weekly pilgrimage, and I, this is unfortunately revealing our age, but in the mid to late 80s, uh, this is pre-internet, pre just about everything, uh, printed materials were our source for information and so i would make my weekly drive or bicycle ride down to tower records and books on el camino avenue in san mateo california and buy autosport and every two weeks on track would come out and so Mm -hmm. followed his career intently there coming up as a junior mechanic engineer and all that kind of stuff. And junior open wheel, uh, was there to see his, his rookie season in cart in 1995, was working in Indy lights at the time. Didn't know him as I was working again in that capacity because I never worked on a team he was on and, uh, but I got to know him the announcement of DeFerrin Motorsports at Sebring okay. in 2008. So, yeah. and the thing that struck me, Justin, and, and where this of the many reasons his loss has hit me so hard and, and I apologize for needing a little bit of, of a runway to explain this, but came from the team side, crew side, had run IndyCar teams, had done a lot of fun things, et cetera, retired at the end of 2001. When you're in the sport on teams on crews on pit lane there is a brotherhood and sisterhood there and there's a a sense of belonging switching over after i quote retired from that side i spent a couple years doing trying to work normal life normal jobs and whatnot came back ended up trying the media side and in 2008 was fortunate enough to have my first full season assignment as a reporter in the American Le Mans series. And I'd started covering it in two, midway through 2006, but 2008 was my first full season, full time uh, appointment with speed. And so it was here where I got to meet Gilles. Mm. And I can tell you that before had met or known some folks, obviously I'd worked with throughout the years as mechanics here and there. And my friend, Paul Taylor, we were on crew together, and he was now working over at Pano's. and so I'd go around sports car paddocks and know some people, but by and large, Justin, I found out very quickly that, yes, I'm in the same paddock, yes, I know many of the same people, and all of this is very familiar to me. I am no longer considered someone who's part of the inside. If anything, mm-hmm. this media role, I am now viewed as an outsider, and you're mm-hmm. not a member of the club and you're prying and getting in the way and you're completely inconsequential and it was a little bit screwed my head a little bit because i felt like i was at home in the same old paddocks and yet the reception from folks all of whom did not know me in this media journalism whatever role was one of cool whatever about your past uh that's not who you are now go stand behind the little barrier there stay away we're going to keep you at arm's length so that's something that really messed with my head yeah DeFerrin Motorsports announced that Sebring would be coming nearly the midway point of the 2008 ALMS season they're covering that filmed a little something I think for speed and got to meet Gilles and asked a couple of questions that weren't just the normal grist of the mill they, uh, whatever it was that I asked was maybe something engineering related or t- something that I guess he picked up on this guy must have some sort of racing background mm-hmm. And the thing that was transformational for me was Jill, which I, fu- I just realized yesterday, truly Justin influenced everything about this career path. I've now been on for nearly 20 years in the media was influenced by him in this specific way at the end of that little interview stand-up interview um stopped filming and he asked me about me hey you know again good to meet you you know hey you you seem to know what you're asking about and that's strange to me tell me about yourself (laughs) and told him about my racing background, the engineering side. And the minute I mentioned the engineering side, I can see in his eyes that connected to him to the line of questions I had asked. And all of a sudden, here I am standing in front of this person I'm completely intimidated by, fastest man in IndyCar history, double champion, Indy 500. I'm seeing the legend in front of me, as most people would. And in an instant, Justin, and for the first time, he saw me as that same person that I was working all of those years as a crew member before. And he was the first to treat me like a member of the paddock. And from there, every conversation we had at the track on the phone, wherever it was all racer to racer shorthand and so much trust given both ways because he knew that I'm not saying I was better than any of the journalists, just I came from a background that made sense to him because he knew a lot of people like me in his professional career. And so the, just the last little thing to add here, I used Gilles and how he treated me as the blueprint for how I needed to go about my career from that moment on. And I realized, you know what, trying to just be a regular quote, regular reporter, that's not the way I am fortunate to come here. This is where I come from. And Gilles was the first person in a year and a half or how long, however long I've been doing it, who really said, "There's there's something a little different. Tell me about yourself. I never had any team owner, driver. That makes ask.
1: that makes so much sense, Marshall. Because that is that was him. That was him. Thank you for sharing that. Because I'll tell you, I used to sit with him, and as you know, I've had a bit more of a roller coaster than most in my professional career, and mm. moving to TV and all these things. I wish I have loved, but Gil was. I'd sit there with him, and he'd be like, "Hi, son." You go. And I'd, I made some comment about God. I should have been better, and I should have done this. And he's just like, I just don't agree. He said he, he'd just he'd just contradict me, and he'd say, No, look what you've done. Look at this. How, how the way you talk, I can't talk. I mean, he he knew how, he he believed in my future more than I did mm. most of the time. He, I, I mean, I wouldn't have uh, my drive to win podcast without his. Him telling me that it's just a great idea you know uh he wouldn't he he just he he just was so motivating like that but you know here's here's what and, and I thank him for that forever and but here's what i i really do want to you know probably to wrap this up a bit because you'll have a twenty four hour podcast but it, which he deserves mm. um but as it, I'll go back to the bit. So Gilles, the track, What a man! What a guy! And I would sometimes ask him. Would sit there, and I'd, he was also someone I could be very honest with. And I say, Gilles, I just, I think I had too much imagination to be, to do what you did at that level. You've never, I said. How did you disconnect to qualify at Michigan? How did you do that? I can't disconnect my imagination from the reality, and I can imagine myself going over the hedge that's not what a racing driver should do. He said, oh, I never thought that. He said, but I said, tell me about the car. I want to know what it felt like. Move your hands. I remember one night I said, we were pretty drunk. (laughs) Um, I said, move your hands the way you moved it on Visualize going around Michigan at that 241.
0: Yeah, Fontana. Yeah, Fontana. uh, Fontana, sorry,
1: Fontana. And he goes, he, he was like, God and he said there's a moment it started to slide on me and I just fucking kept my foot in it. <laughs> he mm. goes, and he goes and he was moving his hands and his feet and I'm going, God, you're just I, I and I just looked at him, I said, I just could never do that. Um, you can't he said, and I can't do what you do. So and then he give me compro you know, he just was it was just great and it was it was the it was the transition, I tell you, which is also important to mention. He was truly happiest when he raised a car, right? He totally loved that. That's what he set out to be from a young man, and everything that came with it, obviously, and his boat and his beautiful family and the amazing house. That was all. That was all incredible. But he really was a pure, pure, pure driver, and as you know, so intellectual, so smart. Um, and then when he stopped, and he, you know, obviously he had his spell in Formula One the first time round. He was always pursuing something that he was just out of reach. It was never quite there. I mean, he loved the sports cars. That was great. He was very frustrated, wasn't he, with IMSA and things like that sometimes because he liked the purity of IndyCar, you know. He loved the purity of Formula cars. Um, But it was the couple of things that I really noticed about his, if you like, second phase of his life. One is... For the first time when it came to his peers, the guys he raced against, the Dario, you know, all of the guys, Scott, everybody, he was able to let his guard down and give them the credit that he'd always wanted to give them. Mm. But part of his mechanism was, I'd go, so what do you think of him? And you go, oh, he's a wanker. Yeah. I'd go, well, he's just won the race. Yeah, but he's a, he's a wanker. You know what I mean? And I, that was part of his... His mechanism, right? You know, and and then I'd go. But afterwards, after he retired, he was like, "God, he was good." <laughs> I'd be like, "Where did that come from?" <laughs> yeah. he, because he could, he could, he didn't have to have that guard up. You know, part of his his true self belief was that you're better than anyone else standing there. That's what the true drivers believe. The true greats do. I truly believe that. And you have talked to enough of them. But when you retire, you can go. Actually, he was amazing. You know. Every time, and we enjoy. I enjoyed those conversations about his peers, but he was seeking. He was seeking what would make him content. And he, as you know, he got into his financial modelling. And boy, I'd walk in his office, and it looked like an idiot savant was in there on ecstasy. There's writing on every surface in his office. Literally, had markers that he could write on every wall in his office. It, and it was like, it was like, I don't know trying to solve the enigma code you know it was, it was to me i didn't understand any of it and to be honest nor did anyone else um but he pursued that but it didn't bring him joy and I, I i said it to zach brown this week on a text i said i'll tell you what he really was enjoying what he was doing right now yeah with McLaren. He felt he was contributing and that's what I don't think it felt for a long time and he was a brilliant man in the sphere of motorsports and, and, and the business of motorsport and what it takes to be a driver and he must, I'm sure he was a huge asset because he knows yeah they might be driving newer cars but there's nothing Orlando or Oscar could tell him about a car he doesn't know, right? And and connect the engineers and connect the people. And, and so I, I can tell you with certainty, he was, when I asked him the 26th, we had a, just a few days ago, you know, it was our last FaceTime and he was, you know, we didn't talk a lot about the future. We just were kind of just mulling over this year and laughing and talking as we did. And, and he said, he'd really enjoyed it. And I have six months left on my contract and, so you know, I'm going to give it everything, and if they like what I do, I'm sure I'll stay. Kind of thing. But I could hear it in his voice; it was really, it was really good. He enjoyed it, and that made me happy. Um, and he was, you know, he loved his kids so much. He's so proud of them. I mean, Luke, his son, is just a magnificent, man. Very like Gilles. Poor bastard is built the same way. Mm. <laughs> and Anna, thank goodness, looks off looks more like. More like uh, Anna, um, Angela, and it's a beautiful, beautiful style and figure. But I tell you what, they all have both kids, they have this certainty of direction and self worth and intellect that Gilles, I mean, Angela's a smart lady, but Gilles, they've got that DeFerrin factor and they will be formidable in their lives. And he knew it. And, you know, I, what else can you say about a family man that has created all that? And for the friends of ours that will be gathered together at his very very small funeral uh, this week, it's it's the people. Everyone loved him. He he, you know, he was a tough man, but he's in a circle. Are are devastated, mate? We're devastated because you know I told him. <laughs> he told him, you've got to get your sh- shit together to to live a long time. Mm. Whew, sorry, boy. Yeah. It's it, it, it really hits you, um,
0: brother. He uh yeah. He loved you. You loved him. Uh, you two were brothers, the the realest of brothers. Right. There was no yeah. racing bond. Right. You didn't become friends no. because you were involved in this team, or that. You two found each other genuinely. Uh, became such great, great friends, so close with him. And I got to admit, it's of the many things I've loved about Gilles, one of them is how his mooring, his his rooting to the earth, so amazing, right? I've said this a couple times with other folks, how... He didn't need the spotlight. He didn't care about the spotlight. That wasn't why he did this. He, there, there was a purity to him, what he did, how he did it, why he did it. And in his death, which still is a very surreal thing to contemplate. Yeah. Um, what I have been struck by is here is this guy who achieved all the things that we've mentioned and more, and yet was not part of the social media craze, not someone who's in and about headlines constantly, really and truly had achieved the great showy, public-facing things in his life, by and large a long time ago, had not been in the headlines much since you would think possibly his passing might be something that resonated with a smaller group of us who remember him from back in the day because he was never trying to be constantly present in that spotlight and yet justin holy cow i i knew Gilles was loved i don't think any of us knew he was this loved, and I yeah. say this in the in the most positive way of he could have been someone who passed, and we are shocked and mourned, but the ripples weren't that big because the the most famous part of his time being well known and famous was twenty years ago,, yeah. and yet this has been felt and received, and the messages from seemingly everybody in the sport most of them who never turned a wheel uh next to him on a racetrack but the amount of people top to bottom left to right nascar f1 everywhere has been phenomenal so you never want someone to die for them to know how much they were loved Oh, I don't think that was a case for Gilles. I think he no. knew how well loved he was. But it's just been to me phenomenal to see wow. Like our yeah. world, our world of racing, and those are interconnected through it. We're all still in tears because this man meant so much to us. Uh wow, what an amazing life lived.
1: Yeah, it is. And beautiful words. I mean beautiful words. My 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 closing Couple of remarks would be this, you know, uh, you make. We're only in our mid fifties, you know, our group basically, and you know, you you everyone's achieved what they've achieved, moving on to next phases. He was never resting on his laurels. He was moving forward. He we 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 always had these funny plans. People do, you know, and I. I've, my life, as you know, changed when I had a heart attack at 44, and I really understood that this isn't a guaranteed ticket to the end of the ride, right? And he was very, uh, very supportive during that period. Um, I uh, At least that made him run to the doctor and get a checkup. <laughs> and then, you know, I had another little medical issue, a little brain bleed, you know, three years ago, and he was immediately on that with me. Um, but... You make plans and in our world today, we get so busy and, you know, we were always going to go to Tuscany and do a cooking course, right? Mm -hmm. Our our girlfriends and wives and people were like, what are you two going to do there? Can we come? And we're like, absolutely not. This is a boy, you know, we're going to go and we love cooking together and we did all this. Uh, My last words to him, which I really did struggle to think about what they were, and then it came to me two days ago, was, I said, listen, let's not talk about how great we're going to be next year. We'll talk about that on New Year's Eve. You know? Mm-hmm. And that was it. And he said, I loved and He said, love me. And that was it. But it was, <clears throat> he will, uh, yeah, a great man. Great man, great human, great dad, great friend, great driver. I mean, it, it, as you say, the outpouring of love and affection has been incredible. Um and uh, I just hope none of no one else I know dies soon because they won't get as. <laughs> that you need a bit of a buffer after a guy like this, because because you don't want to come up next to him, you know. Um, mm. So, uh, but uh, yeah, well, thank you for doing this, Marshall. It, it's helped helped me to talk about it without totally breaking down. Um, all I know is, you know, I. There were two things that he was really happy about. Or would be one thing he be he was very happy about. I went vegan for a while and vegetarian. And the words he called me, the shit he gave me yeah. until and until and then he broke he broke me. I went to his house. This is two three years ago now, coupled with my girlfriend who's a meat eater, but he, he, he was making his special, you know, his Brazilian mm-hmm. meat and this and he's waving it in front of my face. And I crumbled and that was it. I stopped being a meat eater that night and it made him very happy. And I don't drink much anymore, but this Friday with DC and Paul and our closest friends, I think it's going to be, he would be proud. So
0: brother, appreciate you. Thank you for uh, bringing more of Gilles to us. It's a real gift. Thank you, brother.
1: All right. Love you. Take care, everybody. And uh, let's make 24 an amazing year. Okay?
0: Amen. Thanks once again to Justin Bell for taking the time, being willing to talk about this now instead of waiting. Really appreciate his desire and willingness to bring the many, many facets of his dear friend. the public get a chance pay a visit to marshallpruittpodcast.com more than 1400 episodes they are cataloged for your listening enjoyment getting ready to post more of these remembrances here thank you once again for listening